It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Memorial Day, Monday, May 31st, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Tonight, the California Report speaks with USC professor George J. Sanchez about his new book about the history of Boyle Heights. National Native News highlights a new website designed to help Native families through the steps needed to immediately report missing persons cases to the relevant authorities. We'll take a brief look at regional headlines and weather before our bi-weekly Walk in the Park with Sid Brown. We close tonight with a special Memorial Day commentary by Chaplain Norris Burks. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. On this Memorial Day, we honor the sacrifices made for the United States and the ideals our country and California are supposed to stand for, like inclusion, diversity, and opportunity. So today, we thought we'd take a trip to Boyle Heights, a Los Angeles neighborhood where those ideals have played out for well over a century. Just east of downtown, on the other side of the L.A. River, Boyle Heights, with its tightly packed small homes and apartment buildings and small merchants on busy commercial streets, has been called the Ellis Island of the West. The history of the neighborhood and its importance are chronicled in the new book, Boyle Heights, How a Los Angeles Community Became the Future of American Democracy, by USC professor George J. Sanchez, who was also born in the neighborhood. I met Sanchez in Boyle Heights' Mariachi Plaza to talk about his book. He began by reminding me that although the neighborhood is now a crossroads of Mexican-American life and culture, Boyle Heights was the creation of many different communities. It actually wasn't until the 1960 census that the majority of the population uh, became Latino. So before that, in most of the 20th century, it was very much an immigrant neighborhood, a, a neighborhood of working class people that came to Los Angeles, but from all over the world, really. The largest single group were Jews from the East Coast and from Eastern Europe. It included a lot of Mexicans at that time, coming up to the Mexican Revolution, include African Americans from the American South, Japanese from both Japan directly and from Hawaii. It had Italians, Armenians, just about every other group made Boyle Heights home at some point. And how much was Boyle Heights a creation of segregation, that you had people, Latinos, Jews, Japanese Americans, who really couldn't find a place to live in other parts of Los Angeles? Well, Los Angeles, the rest of Los Angeles was booming and it was growing a lot of new construction and and embedded in that new construction were these covenants that meant that those uh, lots could not be sold or inhabited by people of color, certainly Mexicans, blacks, Asians, but also Jews, Italians, other people. So a lot of Los Angeles uh, found itself restricted from these, these new groups. Boyle Heights was not, South L.A. was not, and so that's why those groups ended up being uh, kind of a polyglot community in these other places, including Boyle Heights. Let's bring it up to more of the current situation in Boyle Heights. In more recent years, there's been a lot of concern about gentrification, about outsiders moving in and their effect on property prices and rent. How big of a challenge do you think that is? Well, I think these are 
continue to be challenges. Uh, the gentrification movement, I think, is interesting because unlike most of the other communities around downtown Los Angeles, the latest numbers are it seems to have kept a heavily Latino population. So the, the racial transition that people feared, I think, has, is not really happening. What's happening is the movement of uh, more middle-class Latinos into Boyle Heights, including, by the way, those that grew up here but went off to college and were in previous years, they might not have returned to Boyle Heights. Now they're returning. But it's really a challenge about what do you do when it's your own people coming back and wanting the amenities of, of a more middle-class, college-educated population. And so there's a real balancing act that the community has to face between, on the one hand, wanting to welcome back college-educated folks into the neighborhood, have more home ownership, all of that, but at the same time still be a place that welcomes newcomers, welcomes uh, new immigrants. That's a challenge. What do you think Boyle Heights and other neighborhoods like it in California, the Mission District in San Francisco, Logan Heights in San Diego, what lessons can they provide to us, whether it's on the city level, the state level, or the national level? For me, it's really important that Boyle Heights has always found a way to incorporate newcomers into what I would call kind of democratic practice at the local level. It has found a way, even for newcomers who are undocumented, to participate in the community, to participate in defending the community and making sure that it prospers and survives. One of the things that really interests me is, you know, we have this discussion of 11 million people in the United States who are undocumented. Boyle Heights has an interesting history of, of incorporating them into the local politics in, in what I would call non-electoral democracy. You have a right to speak out as a mother, as a resident, as someone who cares about the community. Those things have been really important. I think there's a lot to learn from that kind of a politics, which of course goes back to the very origins of the Boyle Heights in the early 20th century of incorporating all people into unions, into other uh, political organizations that really defended the, the neighborhood. So Boyle Heights and other neighborhoods like it become kind of a, I don't know, what you call it, a stepping stone into the Americanization process or... It's, it's a stepping stone into the kind of multiracial democracy we're going to need in the future. There's no way to look at the demographic transition of the United States as a whole and not realize that you need communities like Boyle Heights with a tradition and a history of incorporating newcomers and diversity into the very fabric of democracy at the local level. So few communities have that knowledge of that history. Boyle Heights does, and I think if, that, if people can learn from the history of Boyle Heights, it's, uh, it, it tells a national story. Of, of how do we create, you know, one society out of so many different kinds of people. You do it at the neighborhood level. You do it in, with local institutions. You do it with a sense of belonging at the local level, no matter what status you have, no matter where you came from. And I think Boyle Heights is a, is a great story for that. All right. George J. Sanchez, author of Boyle Heights, How a Los Angeles Neighborhood Became the Future of American Democracy. Thanks so much for joining me here. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. 
California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about healthcare on the web at chcf.org voices, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And that is the California Report for Monday, May 31st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Talk to you tomorrow. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes are integrating a new reporting website into their protocols when someone goes missing. Yellowstone Public Radio's Caitlin Nicholas has more. Sean Dillon is one of the primary designers of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Montana reporting website. Dillon says the site isn't intended to do the job of law enforcement. Instead, the website and a coordinator act as a community liaison, guiding families through the steps they need to take to immediately report missing persons cases to the relevant law enforcement agencies. What we're trying to do is just facilitate that, make it easier for people that aren't exactly sure what to do. Blackfeet Community College launched MMIPMT.com in collaboration with Montana's Department of Justice last fall. Blackfeet Nation piloted the site, ushering five cases through the reporting process, and the portal is now available to CSKT as well. Kimberly Loring says this assistance is crucial and could have made all the difference when her sister, Ashley Heavy Runner Loring, went missing. She went missing in June 2017 on the Blackfeet Reservation. When she went missing, there was a gap of when she was reported missing because we had that trust thinking that she was going to be okay. Blackfeet Community College also hired Sky Gillum, a forensic anthropologist and professor at BCC, to spend the summer going through statewide missing persons cold cases. I know these unsolved cases haunt our Native communities and their loved ones desperately deserve closure and justice. I have at this point compiled the case information and data from our database. The next step will be then to reach out to associated law enforcement agencies to gather case files and pertinent information. The coalition working on MMIPMT.com says the goal is to have every tribal nation in the state formally participating by the end of the summer. The funding for the reporting website and unsolved case database, along with a task force addressing Montana's disproportionate rates of missing indigenous people, was created by the 2019 state legislature and extended earlier this year. In Montana, for National Native News, I'm Caitlin Nicholas. Three Dillingham, Alaska students want to change a creek and road name marked by a derogatory term. KDLG's Tyler Thompson reports. Alora Wassily, Trista Wassily, and Harmony Larson were learning about the history of colonization in social studies class. They visited with the Chugyung tribe and learned the story of the Seven Sisters. Here's Alora Wassily. They landed by Squaw Creek and they were looking for a white husband and to have kids and stuff. And then there's also white men looking for a native wife. So squaw usually meant young woman or female anatomy. Then when white settlers came, it became a derogatory word towards native women. The seven sisters traveled to Dillingham from Nushigak Point, a fishing village to the south. The sisters settled there and lived between Squaw Creek and Lake Road. After that visit with the tribe, the girls told their teacher that they wanted to change the name. The students want the name changed to Seven Sisters Creek to reflect the community's connection to the sisters, speaking first as Alora, followed by Trista and Harmony. Descendants of the Seven Sisters through adoption and marriage and marriage and stuff like that. And we're all... And Alora, we were sisters five generations ago. Yep. 
The students said they spoke with Elder Dora Andrew Erkey about Yupik names for the creek. At the end of the presentation, Robin Cheney shared how the adults helped the students put this project together and asked them to consider traditional decision making, not just what's best for now, but what's best for future generations. Some of us are also seven generations from those seven sisters, which is significant to us in our traditional decision making. Their next step will be to meet with the city. In Dillingham, I'm Tyler Thompson. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This reminder to get your COVID-19 vaccination is provided by the Association of American Indian Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention who support this show. Info at aaip.org or cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. A grass and brush fire dubbed the Hudo Incident broke out this morning on Hudo Road off St. Helena Drive on the Nevada-Yuba County line. Ubinet reports that more than 80 personnel were deployed and 11 acres burned before it was contained around 2.20 this afternoon. According to the United States Attorney's Office of the District of Columbia, a California man was arrested for crimes related to the breach of the United States Capitol on January 6th, which disrupted a joint session of the United States Congress in the process of ascertaining and counting the electoral votes related to the presidential election. Sean Michael McHugh, 34, of Auburn, California, is charged with federal offenses that include assault on law enforcement with a deadly or dangerous weapon, obstruction of justice, and physical violence on Capitol grounds, among other charges. McHugh made his initial appearance in the Eastern District of Columbia on Friday, May 28th. And now for regional weather. Most of our listening area is under an excessive heat warning until 9 p.m. tomorrow. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight mostly clear with a low around 69, tomorrow sunny with a high near 95. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear with a low around 51, tomorrow sunny with a high near 84 degrees. And in Sacramento, tonight mostly clear with a low around 66, tomorrow will be sunny and hot with a high near 97. Next, we take a walk in the park. This week, there's some things changing. First off, all three state parks are open from sunrise to sunset. But as the temperatures are rising, 
there's going to be more and more attraction and desire to get into the water and into the river. And we just really encourage whoever comes to the South Yuba River to please be advised that there are rocks and underwater hazards that you may not see. Please exercise caution when you have body contact in our beautiful crystal waters. We are very happy to say that at the Bridgeport area of the South Yuba River State Park, both at the Visitor Center and at the Buttermilk Bend Trail parking lot, we have a life jacket borrowing program, and they are loaners. You are welcome to borrow a life jacket for your family members, anybody that needs a little extra security in the water. That's completely free. It's the honor system. We request that they be returned, but we really want people to be safe, and that's one way you can be safe. With Memorial Day, we are in our high season, and so the cost and the price for day use at both Malakoff Diggins and South Yuba River State Park now goes up to $10 per car. As I have said before, there are lots of no parking signs now along uh, Pleasant Valley Road leading to the Bridgeport area, South Yuba River State Park, and those no parking signs are to allow emergency vehicle access throughout the summer months and throughout the year. So we do have parking, paid parking, both in a lot and right outside the lot and farther up the road on the other side of the river. If you go far enough, there are some pullouts where you can park for free. But in the parking lots, it is a $10 fee, and I want to assure people that 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 money goes to support the park that you are at. The campgrounds are open at Malakoff Diggins, and all the campsites must be pre-reserved. There is a reservecalifornia.com, and you have to make arrangements for your camping at least 48 hours in advance. There are self-guided brochures available at Malakoff, both for the trails and for the historic town tour. There's over 20 miles of trails at Malakoff's. I do want to say, unfortunately, we do not have the capacity to have Humbug Day this year out at Malakoff. That is a traditional celebration of the town of North Bloomfield and Humbug Days. People that used to live there, families before it was a state park, and then staff that used to work there would come every second Saturday in June, but due to the COVID restrictions, this is the second year in a row we've had to cancel that event. However, you're welcome to come on what would be Humbug Day and and choose your own hike and walk and, and experience the park just on your own. We just will not have any special activities there. At South Yuba River State Park, we still have a hard closure at the Jones Fire Site and Independence Trail West. However, the Independence Trail upstream of Highway 49 is open. The Independence Trailhead where people normally park is still closed off for the construction activities associated with the Jones Fire, but just a short distance down Highway 49 toward the river, there is a very large pullout area and parking there and then a stairway that leads you up to the Independence Trail East segment. And you can get to Miner's Tunnel area at the river if you go upstream along that Independence Trail, sort of across from Hoyt's Crossing.
at Empire Mine. The gift shop is open on weekends now, at least from 11 till 4. And we have garden rovers available on Saturdays from 10 to 12 that can answer botanical questions about the historic plantings at Empire Mine. Please, please, please be aware, no open fires. There are no fires allowed in South Yuba River State Park or at Malakoff Day Use Area or at Empire Mine. We are in fire season for sure now, and the threats of any escaped fire or abandoned fire or any fire whatsoever poses huge hazard and concern for all of us here in Nevada County. So please, no fires, but enjoy the outdoors. Sid Brown sits on the board of the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports park-related educational activities and helps to preserve the natural and cultural resources of Western Nevada County's state parks. You can find out more at sierragoldparksfoundation.org. And finally, we close tonight with a special commentary by Chaplain Norris Burks. Hi, this is Chaplain Norris Burks, bringing you a Memorial Day version of spirituality in everyday life. Before I retired as an Air Force chaplain, I knocked on the door of at least 30 homes in the greater Sacramento area since 9-11. I went to those homes with a casualty notification team to help deliver the most unspeakable news. If I could introduce you to those families whose loved ones made the ultimate sacrifice, I would. But because I can't, I'd like you to imagine today that you've joined my notification team. Within the hour of being paged out of our everyday routines, we unite with our team of four inside a local military office. There, we review a training video, we map our route to the home of a newly widowed woman, and we memorize our scripted lines. The commander will deliver the bad news, the medic will watch for signs of stress, and you and I, will offer pastoral care. After our short meeting, we get in our dark blue military sedan and drive into a civilian neighborhood where we find an address that doesn't want to be found. We step from the car and we look much like a small parade formation, really a living, breathing cliche. We park a few hundred yards from the house and use that walking time to ask me some questions. Chaplain, will will this notification be like your previous ones, you ask? And and how long are we going to stay? And, And how will the people respond? You want to know these things. And I tell you that I'm only certain of one thing. Nothing, nothing about these no notice visits are ever predictable. I recollect one visit I had where an anguished father launched into a political diatribe blaming the president for his son's death. I recall another visit where we interrupted a child's birthday party, and yet, in another instance, we stopped a family's airport reunion to tell them that their son wouldn't be on the plane. You shake your head as we come to the doorstep. We wipe our feet on the Disney welcome mat. The commander knocks on the door, and I catch a side glance of her practicing the script. It's a script that will go something like this. Are you Mrs. John E. Jones? Yes. Is your husband Captain John E. Jones? Yes. Ma'am, the Secretary of the Army has asked me to express his deep regret. It may seem rote, but the script is the only way we will all get through the effort. 
Our effort is compassionate but professional. Of course, it'll be unusual if we aren't interrupted by the sobbing screams of denial, but we stay with our lines until they are delivered. I'm glad that you're not a part of this team today. Gratefully, this commentary only recounts a composite of several team experiences. However, it is a script that churns in the mind of every person who has ever served in the military. Every person who wears the uniform of this country fears that their family may one day hear these words of regret from a team such as ours. And yet, despite that fear, they still deploy. They do their jobs, and most of them come home. So let's pause this Memorial Day to memorialize the sacrifices made by these few. Let us imagine being on the color guard at the funeral as a stiff commander accepts a folded flag from her detail and presents it to this family. On behalf of the President of the United States and a grateful nation, she says, please accept this flag as a symbol of our appreciation for the service to our country. God bless you and this family, and God bless the United States of America. This is Chaplain Norris Burks. I hope you'll read more of my commentary at thechaplain.net or send your comments to comment at thechaplain.net. Thanks for listening today. The views expressed on this show are those of the speakers only and are not necessarily those of KVMR, our board, staff, volunteers, or contributors. That's our newscast tonight. We get support from Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering products for arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, knitting. Ben Franklin Crafts is on Sutton Way, Grass Valley, online at benfranklin-crafts.com. Stay tuned. Wings is next. And at 7, it's Democracy Now! I'm Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening. Happy Memorial Day, and I'll see you tomorrow.